0: Today on Something You Should Know, do you honestly wash your hands as well as you should? I'll explain why it's so important. Then, if you're not sleeping the right amount, you could be asking for trouble.
2: I think on a population basis, we know that sleeping very little or sleeping a lot is associated with a range of negative health consequences, including mortality, the most negative health consequences. Also,
0: if you don't like your job, there's a really good reason to quit. And how to get people to pay attention to your ideas in a very crowded and noisy world. You
1: know, in 1986, there was a study that estimated that we were exposed to about 40, 45 newspapers worth of information daily. By 2006, that number jumped to 176. And today, it's probably over a thousand. And when you put all that together, you have a real issue when it comes to capturing the attention of others.
0: All this today on Something You Should Know. You know, sleep is one of my most important topics, which is why we're about to discuss it in just a minute. And let me tell you one of my secrets to sleeping better. It's the calming comfort weighted blanket. This luxurious blanket helps you fall asleep and stay asleep naturally. When you're under this blanket, you experience that feeling of being hugged or cuddled and it is as soothing for adults as it is for children, which is why I suspect I had to get the second one, because my son Angelo liked the first one so much, he took it off my bed and put it on his bed. Calming Comfort applies an even amount of pressure over your body to help the production of serotonin and melatonin, simulating deep-touch pressure stimulation. If you have trouble sleeping, you need to try this blanket. The Calming Comfort Weighted Blanket comes with a 90-day, anxiety-free, stress-free, best night's sleep of your life guarantee from Sharper Image. Right now, just for my listeners, you can go to calmingcomfortblanket.com and use the promo code SOMETHING at checkout to receive 15% off the displayed price. Again, that's calmingcomfortblanket.com, promo code SOMETHING. And because you can't put a price on a great night's sleep, Go online right now at CalmingComfortBlanket.com and use the promo code SOMETHING for your special discount today. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. We're heading into cooler weather, and cooler weather typically means cold and flu season. So I want to start today by talking about washing your hands, because 80% of all infectious diseases are spread by touch. The Center for Disease Control recommends that you wash your hands for at least 15 seconds. However, studies show that the reduction of skin bacteria is nearly 10 times greater if you wash your hands with soap for 30 seconds rather than 15 seconds. Now, 95% of the population says they wash their hands after using a public toilet. However, when 8,000 people were monitored across five large cities in the U.S., they found that the actual number was more like 67%. When people wash their hands, the most commonly missed areas are fingertips and fingernails. And here's something else important to consider, hot or warm water is no more effective than cold water when you wash your hands. It may feel better, but it doesn't help you clean your hands any better. And you should ask your doctor to wash his or her hands as well. A recent poll of pediatric ICU physicians showed that they claimed their rate of washing their hands in between patients was 73%, but when followed and observed, The hand washing rate was found to be less than 10%. And that is something you should know. There is not a person alive, I suspect, who hasn't at some point in their life struggled with sleep. You can't fall asleep. You can't stay asleep. You sleep, but you're still tired all the time. You sleep too much or you sleep too little. Sleep can be a real problem for virtually everyone. And here with the latest research, techniques, and advice on the subject is Dr. Guy Leschziner. He is a neurologist in London where he leads the Sleep Disorder Center, which is one of the largest sleep services in Europe. He's also author of the book, The Nocturnal Brain, Nightmares, Neuroscience, and the Secret World of Sleep. Hi, Guy. Thanks for joining me from London. Thanks very much for having me on. So I must tell you that I love the subject of sleep. We've talked about it a couple of times on this podcast. And one of the, th- the things that I love about it is that, you know, it af- obviously affects everyone. Everyone has different experiences with sleep. Everyone has a different relationship with sleep. A- and what is, what is your relationship with sleep?
2: Well, I've always been fascinated with sleep. Uh, really, even as a, a schoolboy, I was fascinated with neuroscience and read the books of Oliver Sachs. And it was really reading those stories that got me fascinated by the world of, of neurology. And as, a, as an undergraduate, uh, although uh, historically in the UK and, and pretty much everywhere in the world, sleep has been very, very poorly uh, taught. It's been largely ignored. But as an undergraduate, when I was at Oxford, I was asked to go away and write a, uh, a thesis on why we dream. And what occurred to me at that point was, first of all, how little we knew about uh, sleep and the fact that despite us doing this for eight hours a day, we have no real understanding of why we do what we do. Um, uh, it It was a really fascinating area that uh, subsequently has taken me into all sorts of areas of medicine because we now understand that that sleep and sleep medicine has links with every aspect of human physiology and human medicine.
0: It is so interesting that sleep is such a dominant part of our lives. We spend a lot of time doing it, and when we don't do it well, it screws up the other time when we're not doing it. And and yet, yeah, as you say, it's it's just uh, it's kind of an almost a nuisance. Like, well, you have to do that, and you have to sleep, and and yeah, I guess it's important, but nobody really spends a lot of time thinking a whole lot about it. But, but but it's so critical.
2: Well, it's it's staggering, really, if you think about it. If if somebody were to ask you, well, why do we eat, or why do we drink, and you turned around to them and said, well, you know, I don't know. Um, it would be laughable yet this fundamental aspect of our lives that's absolutely crucial to every aspect of our being we really understand incredibly poorly
0: so why do we sleep what happens when we sleep what does it do for us uh beyond the obvious you know then we're not so tired the next day but but w- w- what is going on there
2: I think the answer is that there's no one function of sleep, that sleep has a multitude of functions. So we know that it is primarily controlled by the brain and many of its functions are for regulation of brain function of, of normal brain functioning so that sleep is part of the housekeeping that is required to maintain our brain which is a the most metabolically active organ in our bodies in in fighting shape we know that sleep has important functions in terms of making connections between different cells within our brain, sometimes actually pruning those connections, but it's also involved in, for example, flushing out toxins or metabolites, substances that have built up over the course of the day out of our brains and back into the rest of our our systems. But it goes well beyond the brain in that we now understand that sleep is absolutely uh, vital for regulation of cardiovascular function, for kidney function, for uh, healing and restoration of various aspects of our bodies, regulation of our immune system, and so on. So uh, an absolute array of functions. When we talk about quality of sleep,
0: is it, 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 not all sleep is the same in that that you could sleep eight hours and maybe feel really rested and somebody else could sleep the same eight hours
2: and, and not feel so rested, yes? Yes, that's absolutely right. I, I I think that some of that is related to the fact that sleep is not a single state. So we often think of sleep and wake as being binary states. So either you're awake or either you're asleep but actually what we know is that sleep consists of multiple different stages so we at its most basic level we divide sleep up into into rem sleep or rapid eye movement sleep where the brain appears to be very active When we monitor the activity of the brain using electrodes on the scalp, actually it looks rather similar to wake uh, on that basis. And then non-REM sleep, which is where the brain activity slows down and becomes a little bit more quiescent. But even within those categories, we know that in non-REM sleep, which is the stage of sleep that we most associate with restorative sleep or or, uh, sleep that makes you feel better when you wake up Um, there are different stages of sleep and it seems that our experience of sleep you know how we subjectively feel our night has gone sometimes bears relatively little relationship to um, the objective measurement of sleep that we can record when you come in for a sleep for a sleep test in a sleep laboratory. What about people's sleep requirement?
0: You hear people say, I can get by on a couple hours of sleep. I'm one of those people that if I don't get a good night's sleep, uh, I feel the effects. It's I suffer the next day. And some people seem to skip by on very little. What's the, what's the science
2: say? Well, I think on a population Basis, we know that sleeping very little or sleeping a lot is associated with a range of negative health consequences, including mortality, the most negative health consequence. So people who sleep a very short period you know, usually less than about six hours, certainly have an increased risk of, of mortality compared to those who sleep seven or eight hours. But it's important to understand that that is on a population basis, and that for each individual, what is seen as a normal sleep requirement is perhaps slightly different. And that's a function of the quality of your sleep. So whether or not you've got anything else going on with your sleep, like, for example, sleep apnea, this breathing condition that disrupts the quality of your sleep because your airway is constantly collapsing. But it's also a function of your genes in that we know that there are a number of genes that influence our sleep requirements. So, for example, I have a a few families that I've seen in whom everybody in that family sleeps a very short duration and doesn't seem to have any negative effects of sleeping, say, four or five hours a night. But it's also important to understand that some people are resistant to the effects of sleep deprivation in terms of how sleepy they feel, but not necessarily resistant to the effects of sleep deprivation in terms of, for example, their cognitive function, how how easy they find to perform particular tasks, or how good their memory is, for example. So just because you don't necessarily feel sleepy when you're sleep deprived doesn't mean that you don't have any consequences of that sleep disruption per se. Can you,
0: quote, make up sleep? In other words, you have trouble sleeping and so you add extra hours on the weekend and, and
2: it, it all evens out? Well, the evidence suggests that if you sustain a significant sleep debt, which is how we term it, that if you're losing quite a lot of sleep during the week, then actually it's quite difficult to make that up by lying in at the weekend and that that some of those cognitive effects of being sleep deprived during the week persist on a Monday morning. So so the answer to that is if you really are burning the candle at both ends, then, then actually catching up at the weekend is very difficult.
0: In terms of, and I've heard the expression, you know, sleep hygiene, that how how we create our sleep environment, what we, the rituals we go through, those kinds of things can have a real impact on our
2: sleep. Yeah, uh, sleep hygiene is a horrible term. Uh, It it, it, it really conjures up images of, you know, sleeping in a dirty bed. Uh, Essentially, what we mean by sleep hygiene, as you say, is those behaviors that are conducive to a good night's sleep. Uh, And and some of those are really obvious, you know, like not drinking uh, several cups of coffee before you go to bed, not smoking immediately before you go to bed or consuming other uh, nicotine containing substances, um, uh, sleeping in a a, a quiet environment. Some of them are becoming increasingly well known. Uh, like avoiding bright light in the evening so there is some evidence to suggest that what we do by exposing ourselves to bright light in the evenings is suppress our natural secretion of melatonin so melatonin is this substance that an area of the brain called the pineal gland puts out that uh, that is the chemical signal to the brain and indeed the rest of the body that it's time to go to sleep So by exposing yourself to bright light in the evenings, what you may actually be doing is having a negative effect both on sleep quality, but also making it more difficult for you to get off to sleep in the first instance.
0: When people have trouble sleeping, are there a million different reasons depending on the person, or is there typically a a reason or two why?
2: We know that one of the major causes of difficulty sleeping, insomnia, is actually uh, a a condition called psychophysiological insomnia, where psychological factors um, largely surrounding your association, your conscious and unconscious association with being in the bed and drifting off to sleep are replaced by negative associations so rather than associating bed with being a comfortable sleeping environment where you feel cozy and you feel the warmth of and the security of knowing that you're going to drift off to sleep it's replaced by that stress that agitation that anxiety that you're actually not going to drift off to sleep and that you're going to lie there awake for prolonged periods of time so rather than the bed being an inviting place of comfort it often gets that psychological association is replaced by a feeling that your bed is an instrument of torture that it's the place where you go to where you will have difficulties uh, dropping off to sleep and will stay awake for a prolonged periods of time and for many people it's addressing that those psychological factors that is actually the solution to actually treating their insomnia for other people however there are many biological factors that result in poor sleep be that medication that you're prescribed for something else be it a a range of sleep disorders like obstructive sleep apnea or a condition called restless leg syndrome so there are many different reasons but we know that by far the commonest is insomnia which affects about one in three adults at some point every year and about one in ten adults on a regular long-term basis.
0: So sometimes I'll have trouble sleeping because, you know, something exciting happened or is about to happen or, you know, anticipating tomorrow. And is is that just is that insomnia or is that just something exciting's
2: happening? Well, that's just normal. That's a normal response to what's going on in your life. I think that one of the things that's underappreciated is that the range of normal when it comes to sleep is actually quite large. Um, And and just because you have a few nights where you don't sleep particularly well, that doesn't constitute insomnia. It doesn't constitute an an ailment. It is part of normal life. I'm
0: speaking today with Dr. Guy Leschner. He is a neurologist in London, and the name of his book is The Nocturnal Brain, Nightmares, Neuroscience and the Secret World of Sleep. Here's an interesting statistic. 83% of burglars admitted that they specifically look to see if there is an alarm before they burglarize a house. Which makes a lot of sense. Why would you burglarize a house with an alarm when so many houses don't have one? And in fact, only one in five homes has home security. Maybe that's because security companies don't make it very easy. It's confusing, it can get expensive, it takes a lot of time and it's a hassle, which is why you really need to consider Simply Safe. Simply Safe protects every door, window and room with 24/7 professional monitoring and they make it easy. There's no contract, no hidden fees and no fine print. But one thing that truly makes Simply Safe stand out is their video verification technology. When other home security systems are triggered, a lot of the time police assume it's a false alarm. And the call goes to the bottom of the list. Not with Safe. Using their video verification technology, they're able to visually confirm that a break-in is happening right now. And that allows police to get to the scene 3.5 times faster than other home security companies. And for my listeners, Safe has a huge deal going on right now. Go to SimplySafe.com slash something and get free shipping and a money back guarantee. That's simplysafe.com slash something today. SimplySafe.com slash something. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. But you know what's easy? Bundling policies with Geico. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit geico.com today. That's geico.com. So, you own or rent your home, right? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. So Guy, are there things that people either don't know that if they did know would help them sleep better, or perhaps some things people think they know that by not knowing the truth are helping them sleep worse?
2: You know, people don't appreciate that caffeine hangs around for a a very long time, particularly if you consume a lot of it. People, especially nowadays, are very used to using gadgets, you know, their cell phones or laptops in bed, and that's not very conducive firstly because of the issue of light exposure but secondly also that's quite a mentally stimulating activity but there are you know one of one of the issues is that there are a range of sleep disorders that are very poorly known about uh, not just by the general population but also by physicians And in many cases, we often see individuals who clearly have had a problem with a sleep disorder for many years that has gone unrecognized. So it's knowing about these sleep disorders, recognizing them as sleep disorders, that is really the first step to getting appropriate treatment. When people are diagnosed with a
0: true sleep disorder, it's not just that they're having some trouble sleeping now and again, but they have something really wrong. Are these sleep disorders generally based in biology or psychology or what?
2: Both, really, because the psychological and the physical interact quite a lot. There are some sleep disorders that are clearly purely biological. Things like obstructive sleep apnea, which is, you know, people who are snoring and collapsing their airway in the middle of the night. Things like restless leg syndrome, which is physical things like narcolepsy, which is a very pure neurological disorder that results in damage to a very small part of the brain. But for some individuals, there are sleep disorders that have inputs from both. So for example, people who sleepwalk. We know that actually the basis of sleepwalking is purely biological. It's as a result of different parts of the brain being asleep whilst other parts of the brain are awake. But obviously, those events can be influenced by daytime stress sleep deprivation poor sleep hygiene so this is a good example of an interaction of of the psychological and the behavioral and the environmental and the physical what about
0: dreaming why do we dream is it just the the brain's got to do something while you're sleeping so it does that and it plays little movies or is there more to it or what
2: Well, I I think I mentioned at the start of this interview that uh, one of the uh, essays that I was uh, sent off to write was Why Do We Dream? And I'm not sure that we have any better inkling now than when I was writing that essay over 25 years ago. I I think we know that dreaming probably has more than one function, and it probably has different functions at different stages of our lives. So there are lots of theories, but none have been definitively proven. One, one of the theories is that uh, dreaming is uh, absolutely crucial to the development of consciousness in early life, so what differentiates us from other animals. But it also appears that dreaming is of uh, significant importance in terms of memory, in terms of emotional processing, in terms of learning something about our environment. And one of the popular theories about dreaming is that actually it's a it creates a virtual environment in which we can tweak our model of the world around us so that we're integrating the sum of all our past uh, experiences to uh, tweak what we understand about the world around us.
0: What do you think? I mean, people have theorized that, you know, dreaming – Predicts the future. That dreaming helps you solve problems that you can't solve while you're awake. What, what do you, what's your sense?
2: I think to argue that it's that it predicts the future is very difficult from a scientific rationalist perspective. But certainly there is some evidence that. Um, REM is is linked to creativity so REM sleep being the the stage of sleep that we most associate with with dreaming you know there are many many examples of people who have uh, dreamt particular songs or particular works of of literature uh, uh you know Paul I think it was Paul McCartney and Yesterday is often um uh, is often used as an example of, uh, of that. He said that uh, he, he that came to him in a dream. So, so you know, clearly there is uh, potentially something in the fact that REM is about creating links between different parts of the brain which facilitates creativity.
0: This idea that, you know, if you dream about this, it must mean that, that, that that's a pretty weak connection.
2: I, I, I think that has largely fallen away as a popular idea in the world of neuroscience. I've read and heard it said that one of the ways, if
0: you're having trouble sleeping, one of the ways to improve your sleep is to go to bed at the same time every night and get up at the same time every morning, seven days a week, do it regularly, and that that consistency will help improve pretty much anybody's sleep.
2: Yes? Yes, the brain is a creature of habit. And, um, you know, sleep is a learned habit and as such can be unlearned. I think the exception to that is that occasionally I see people who have become so obsessed by their sleep that they actually, if they don't meet that rigid schedule, they become very, very stressed and then don't sleep at all as a result. So, so there is a, a line to be trodden, uh, balancing uh, your habits, but making sure that it doesn't become an obsession.
0: What is that thing that I have, and I know a lot of other people have, that ability to, if I say I'm going to wake up tomorrow at five o'clock in the morning and I set the alarm for five o'clock in the morning, I'll wake up about two minutes before five, just before the alarm gets off. I don't know how I do that. How do, What? what is that?
2: It is important to stress that we all within our brains have a clock. We have a, a, a circadian rhythm. There's a part of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus that um, that regulates our circadian rhythms throughout our bodies. It's also important to, to understand that, that sleep, as I said, is not a continuous state. So people are constantly having brief awakenings or having very, very light sleep uh, and um, so so it's quite possible that there are some circuits within the brain that maintain a degree of awareness or a degree of consciousness. In fact, that's what we think is happening during lucid dreaming, which is when people have uh, an awareness of the fact that they're in a dream and can actually sometimes exert conscious control over their dream. These are networks that are responsible for consciousness that are firing during our dreaming sleep. And they probably fire in different stages of sleep as well. So, so you know, to think of the brain as being switched off uh, during sleep is quite incorrect. There are a lot of electronic
0: devices, sleep trackers that people wear that to kind of track how much they sleep, how much they move around when they sleep, uh, how often they wake up, that kind of thing. What do you think about those sleep trackers?
2: the answer to that is, is mixed. The difficulty that I have with sleep trackers is that first of all, they uh, sometimes uh, engender a, a degree of obsessionality about sleep, but also people may be drawing very wrong conclusions about the nature of their sleep in that we know that sleep trackers do have issues in terms of their accuracy. They're good at telling us how long we spend in bed. They're okay at telling us how much sleep we get but they're not very good at telling us what stages of sleep we're in and people often become quite obsessed about you know the fact that they're not getting as much deep sleep as they feel they should or that their sleep tracker shows that they're waking up multiple times a night and that can actually drive the insomnia and can make things worse and actually when you talk to people with significant insomnia, they will often say, you know, when I'm sitting on the sofa watching television or listening to music or um, reading a book, I will doze off. And once I get into bed, I find it incredibly difficult. So it's when they're not thinking about the process of going to sleep, when they're not in bed thinking about sleep, that they're actually far more able to fall asleep. Well, this is really helpful
0: because, as I said, so many people, pretty much everybody, at some point in their life has trouble with their sleep. And this is some excellent information that can really help everybody. Dr. Guy Leschziner has been my guest. He is a neurologist in London, and he is author of the book, The Nocturnal Brain, Nightmares, Neuroscience, and the Secret World of Sleep. You'll find a link to his book at Amazon in the show notes for this episode. Thanks, doctor. Okay. Bye-bye. A new year is a good time to discover new interests. And if you have kids a KiwiCo subscription will help your child discover something new all year long. As a subscriber, you get these very cool crates delivered to you that contain fun and innovative science and art projects, and they have different ones for kids of different ages. We've been KiwiCo subscribers for quite a while now. and Some of the projects that my son has created are a pinball machine, a safe, a hand pump... And the most recent one, he actually built the headphones I'm using right now in the studio. Encourage your child to be innovators and creative thinkers. They won't believe what they can build and accomplish with KiwiCo. As a parent, I know it's hard to find new creative ways to keep kids busy while stretching their imagination, especially now. KiwiCo does all the legwork for you. Get real, high-quality engineering, science, and art projects for your kids. And don't be surprised if you join in to help, as I always do, because these projects are so much fun. KiwiCo is redefining learning with hands-on projects that build confidence, creativity, and critical thinking skills. There's something for every kid, or kid at heart, at KiwiCo. Get 30% off your first month plus free shipping on any crate line with code SOMETHING at KiwiCo.com. That's 30% off your first month at K-I-W-I-C-O dot com, promo code SOMETHING. You've likely heard me mention and recommend the Jordan Harbinger Show podcast before, and the reason I mention it is, well, yes, Jordan advertises his show here, And he does that for strategic reasons. You see, people who like this podcast are bound to like his podcast. He and I have a similar philosophy. In fact, I just spoke with him on the phone yesterday to compare some notes. Look, I really want you to give The Jordan Harbinger Show a listen. He covers a lot of topics with big-name guests like Seth Godin, Mark Cuban, uh, Kevin Systrom, one of the founders of Instagram. And Jordan's done really interesting episodes where he talks about his visits to North Korea, as well as how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars being chased by the feds and the mafia. So, as you see, there's a lot of variety, but one constant is Jordan's ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you'll find something useful that you can apply in your life in every episode of Jordan's podcast. I enjoy The Jordan Harbinger Show, and and I'm not saying that because he's advertising. It really is good. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. All of us have an idea, a project, a cause, something we wish we could get the world to pay attention to. But getting the world's attention, getting anyone's attention, is harder now than it's ever been. Yet some people are able to do it. So how do they do it? That's what we're about to find out from my next guest, who is Ben Parr. Ben is an award-winning journalist, author, entrepreneur, investor, keynote speaker, and an expert on growth and attention. He was editor-at-large for Mashable, columnist for CNET, and his book is called Captivology, The Science of Capturing People's Attention. Welcome, Ben, and let's start with why it's, why it's so hard to get people to pay attention.
1: The science says that um, we're exposed to more information than ever. You know, in 1986, there was a study that estimated that we were exposed to about 40, 45 newspapers' worth of information daily. By 2006, that number jumped to 176, and today it's it's gotten even higher, probably over 1,000. And more than 90% of the world's information has been created in the last three years alone. And when you put all that together, you just you have a real issue when it comes to capturing the attention of others, because there's just so much information. It's both a good thing and a bad thing.
0: Because if you've got information you want to get out there, you, you've got quite a battle on your hands, because so does everybody else.
1: Absolutely. And there's so many great causes, passions, ideas, startups that deserve attention, but a lot of people don't know how to get their ideas to the forefront.
0: So let's talk about that. I mean, uh, some people seem to do it pretty well, and most of us don't, and and so what's the difference?
1: Uh, I think the biggest difference is that a lot of people just don't understand how attention works or don't actively court it, and they're the ones, unfortunately, missing out because the ones who... Understand attention, and the ones who actively court it for their passions and their projects and ideas are the ones who capture attention the most. Difference between you know building a Facebook and building you know a social network nobody ever hears of, or a charity that take makes it to the mainstream, or a charity that just doesn't go anywhere.
0: So help me understand how attention works.
1: Uh, so attention, in my model, in captivology is a three stage process and that's how people should think about it. In the first stage, immediate attention. Um, it is our immediate reaction to certain sight, sounds and colors. It's our immediate reaction to a gunshot or a symbol or a color. But you move on from to short attention to short term focus. It's our focus maybe on a song or a show or a movie. And then you move to the final stage and the most important stage, long attention, which is our long term interest and our a long term fascination with something. It's the difference between Listening to a Beyonce song and becoming a lifelong fan of beyonce. difference between uh, looking at an Apple phone or looking at a commercial and you know becoming a lifelong customer of Apple.
0: How does Beyonce or Apple get some people to become lifelong fans, whereas other people just enjoy their music and move on what's What are they doing to pull those people in, and what why are some people resisting?
1: What they do is they walk their audience through those the three stages of attention they do something to initially capture their attention and then they walk them through and then they build a deeper relationship. One of the triggers I talk about in the book uh is acknowledgment, which is that we pay attention to those who pay attention to us and provide us with validation or an identity. Part of the reason why Beyonce and artists like Taylor Swift or One Direction or that have been so successful because it's not just being a fan of them. It's an identity. You know? It's not just Beyonce. It's the Bayhive. It's not just Justin Bieber. It's believers. It's creating a community that people want to be a part of. And that's among the most powerful things you can do. It's the same thing for great products. They build great communities.
0: So how do you do that? How do you? How do you? Is it is it a, a characteristic of the person? Is it is it uh, salesmanship? I mean, what what is it that that you actually do to get that?
1: It's provided validation and acknowledgement, and so um, the science again shows that we pay deep attention to those who provide us with validation. We don't want to pay attention to somebody who seems in it for just themselves. And so, one example, um, one person I interviewed was Jonah Peretti, the founder of BuzzFeed. And what BuzzFeed does is, if you read their articles and their article titles, they're really about validating their audience. They have things like 54 things that Minnesotans are too humble to brag about. And what happens is that people who are of that identity, in this case Minnesotans, share it like a beacon. And the reason is because it validates an aspect of their identity. And that's a fundamental human need, but not a lot of companies really think about how do I validate my audience, how do I acknowledge my audience.
0: That's brilliant. That's and that's a great example of a, of exactly that. Because who who in Minnesota isn't going to share that with everybody?
1: Exactly, and they do it. Then BuzzFeed does it incredibly well. Um, and sadly, a lot of brands don't.
0: Why don't they? Is it just they don't get it?
1: I think it's a combination of they don't get it and they just don't know. Um, that's part of the reason why I wrote Captivology because I feel like a lot of people don't know. Uh, These why certain people pay attention and don't understand, you know, why is it that certain communities and certain companies and certain people are more captivating? In this case, it really is about acknowledging others. It's the same reason why Kickstarter and Indiegogo have done so well, because people get to participate, feel acknowledged, feel validated, um, are part of something greater than just themselves.
0: Doesn't being first help too, though?
1: Being first absolutely does help, but being first doesn't always mean you win. Um, one of the other triggers I discuss is the disruption trigger, which is a great tool for capturing attention. And the science, again, shows that we pay attention to the things that violate our expectations. And that's because we, um, it's a threat assessment for us. We're trying to find out, you know, if if we're sitting at a bar and suddenly a clown walks up to us and, like, hugs us, we're going to pay attention because that's not normal. And we have to figure out, is this a good thing? Maybe it's a friend or is this a bad thing? Maybe it's someone trying to mug us.
0: But at least it got your attention.
1: Yes, there is such a thing between positive and negative attention. You know, Patagonia a couple of years ago, they did a campaign called Don't Buy This Jacket. And that's the thing that a clothing brand shouldn't say. But when they went deep into it, they talked about how they wanted to help you keep your jackets and your clothing um, as good as it could be and be environmentally friendly and help you repair it. And you know what happened when they had that campaign? Their sales more than doubled over the next couple of years.
0: Just because of that that connection, that feeling that they're validating, they care about me, so I'll care about them.
1: They disrupted people's expectations, and then they validated their audience.
0: Well, what about that idea of reciprocity? Is that is that part of this?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, enabling participation and rep- um, is a key element to attention. It's again part of that acknowledgement process. Again, what happens when you look at a uh, YouTube stars? they do a great job in uh, the modern era of uh, reaching out to their fans directly interacting with them of making a field knowledge and asking them for feedback and comments and advice it's part of the reason why now lots of teenagers are uh, go wild for youtube stars much more than they do for traditional celebrities
0: do you think that that's somewhat generational though that would older people if they did watch those YouTube stars feel about them the same way as younger people do, or is this just a younger people thing, or what?
1: I think that it's a it's another effect that I talk about in the book, which I call um, the framing trigger. And it's that we pay attention to the things that fall within our worldview, of, within our frame of reference. It's the reason, for example, why talking about global warming will have a completely different reaction between two people on opposite coasts of the country. And it's the same thing, the new generation has grown up with YouTube and YouTube stars and this kind of connection. And so this is their level of celebrity, and it's not the same, at least for most adults, because they didn't grow up with YouTube. Um, And they have a different frame of reference. And you could expect this frame of reference to change with each generation.
0: So it sounds like these things are pretty deeply based in human nature, that, yeah, the players change and the technology changes, but this really is human nature.
1: Absolutely, and I think what the difference between now and maybe back then was is that now we actually have the scientific knowledge to understand why these things happen and how they work psychologically, and we didn't have that even 20 years ago. Um, and that's part of the reason why I went forth and wrote this book, because this knowledge, I think, is very useful and very powerful for lots of people.
0: Can you give me an example or two of, of somebody who, you've, you've mentioned BuzzFeed, but, but somebody else or one or two other companies or people that do this really well?
1: David Copperfield. And David Copperfield has done a fantastic job of this. And the reason why is because he thinks very thoughtfully about the, every aspect of how his audience is going to react to his presentations. He's a master at the frame of reference. He thinks about how his audience is going to view or feel something, and builds around that feeling, and builds around getting them to participate and to feel like they're involved, and feel just joy and magic, without uh, it being about himself and making it more about them. Um, Another good example, Shigeru Miyamoto, who I interviewed, who's the creator of Super Mario, and they did a fantastic job of creating not just a character who's iconic, Mario, but creating a game series that's lasted for several decades.
0: So why do you suppose there are some brands, some companies, some people who don't jump on this bandwagon? If it is as clear as you paint the picture, it seems like everybody should be doing this. So is it just a matter of of knowledge and and people have to learn about this and then they'll catch on?
1: I think more and more people will realize that you have to go to your audience and you have to validate them and you have to capture their attention in order to succeed. And just a lot of people maybe are set in their ways and go by the old methods, and those methods don't work anymore in an era that where we've completely changed how information works. And so the ones who are going to succeed, the ones who are succeeding now, are the ones who have adapted to the modern social media era, filled with information, and found ways to uh, rise above the noise.
0: I can imagine people listening to this and thinking, well, you know, this doesn't really apply to me, because what he's talking about are big ideas, the next big thing, rather than the more mundane, you know, I just, I'm just selling what I sell, and there's a lot of other people who do the same thing. It's going to be hard to capture people's attention with an idea that's been around a long time and that people are already familiar with.
1: I disagree. I think that it's absolutely possible, even um, regardless of whether you're a salesman or a teacher or a businessman or a businesswoman or an entrepreneur. It's, it's a little bit of like going through those stages. It's about either building that relationship or uh, using creative techniques to really make what you do interesting and what you're selling interesting. I can think of interesting plenty of ways. You could make something that maybe seems dull on the surface fascinating to lots of people. It's just a matter of people putting the effort and trying and having the knowledge of how to capture attention.
0: And to the people who do this well, did they stumble along the way? I mean, is this this a science, or is this uh, you kind of have to feel your way around?
1: It's both. You know, you can be equipped with the knowledge of attention and the science of it, but then it's all about the execution after that and the trial and error. You know, great companies, for example, are very metric-driven. They're looking at the statistics of which things resonate with their audience, which ones don't. And the ones who maybe make a mistake, they quickly apologize and they move on. And I even talk about the difference between, you know, a short scandal and a long scandal. In the end, it's just really, you just got to go out there and you just got to go try things. And you got to get to know your audience, especially.
0: Well, in this increasingly noisy world where so many people are trying to get everyone's attention, this is, this is really important. Ben Parr has been my guest. His book is Captivology, The Science of Capturing People's Attention. And you will find a link to his book in the show notes. Thank you, Ben. If you hate your job, you should probably leave as soon as possible. It turns out that job dissatisfaction has real consequences. In a study at Ohio State, people who reported greater levels of dissatisfaction with their jobs when they were in their 20s and 30s scored lower on measures of overall mental health by the time they hit their 40s, compared to those who had been consistently happy with their work. While the study started analyzing guys when they were in their 20s, it's likely that older men dissatisfied with their jobs face similar effects as well. It turns out that being unhappy at work also takes a physical toll. Those people with low job satisfaction were more likely to suffer from 13 different health complications, including frequent colds and sinus problems, than those who enjoyed their work. The good news is that if you leave a job you hate for one that is more satisfying, many of these problems just disappear. And that is something you should know. And now I will simply disappear, after I ask you to please share this podcast with someone you know. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.